Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues crucial to the health of the American West. I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of High Country News. West Obsessed is a collaboration between High Country News and KVNF Community Radio in Paonia, Colorado, where today we're talking about the future of our national parks. As many of you know, the National Park Service is celebrating its centennial this year. That has meant a lot of fanfare for the national parks, but it has also meant a lot of scrutiny. The truth is the parks are kind of in trouble. They're facing funding difficulties, climate change, and a real lack of diversity, both within the National Park Service itself and in the demographics of people who use them. At High Country News, we just wrapped up a whole issue dedicated to the future of the national parks, and we're going to talk about that today. To help me, I've got senior editor Jody Peterson, who spearheaded this latest issue, and contributing editor Glenn Nelson, who wrote a really interesting piece on park diversity. Welcome, Jody. Uh, thanks, Brian. Welcome, Glenn. Great to be here, Brian. Uh, to start with, Jody, let's talk for a moment about the big picture. Earlier this year, we spent a lot of time reporting on parks from kind of a fun travel perspective, but uh, in this issue, we kind of take a harder look. Uh, I think both of those approaches speak to how important the parks really are um, to us and to our readers and hopefully to people who live in the West. Uh, but maybe you could just start start off talking about why we thought it was necessary to put out a fixing the parks issue. What needs fixed? Yeah, um, the national park system, you know, which, as Brian noted, has just turned 100 this year. Um, it's it's some of the mo- most spectacular public land in America and some of the most you know, incredible opportunities to be out outdoors and enjoy recreation. And it's a, it's a huge legacy, um, you know, culturally and recreationally for this country. But these parks are in trouble. They've been consistently underfunded for many decades. They have a huge backlog of maintenance projects that just aren't getting done. Um, they are facing, you know, the, the very parks, the features that some of the parks were formed to protect like glaciers are disappearing because of climate change. So we have the, you know, Glacier National Park where the glaciers are just melting away. Um, so the, and then there's the problem of diversity and that the fact of the demographics of the country are changing a lot. Um, and, you know, minorities are becoming the majority, but the makeup of the people who work for the Park Service doesn't reflect that fact. And that makes it more difficult for people to enjoy and support those parks. They don't go to a park and see people who look like them and they're not as interested in supporting parks. Um, So it's also an issue for the future of the parks, um, you know, developing a new constituency to support parks. Yeah, well, so, yeah, so there's sort of like glacierless national park problem. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a, a lot of ecological problems that come along with climate change. And at the same time, there's a funding problem. And then at the same time, it's kind of a triple whammy. Um, and Glenn, I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about what the, that sort of fixing idea has to do with diversity. Uh, you're the founder of Trail Posse, which is a, a reporting project dedicated to bringing more diversity to the outdoors. Maybe you could just elaborate on what Jody just said, which um, is what kind of what does diversity look like or not look like um, in the national park system? Yeah, it's more of the not look like part. Uh, I I actually got involved in my project because of the national parks. Um, my wife and I hike uh, a lot in the national parks, and ours we're talking about. Hey, we don't see other people like us here. What's what's going on? And my wife suggested I write a piece about it, and I started. Um, researching it and actually one of the 
the the great resources was Jody's uh, excellent piece is probably still the most um, thorough look at lack of diversity in the, or the diversity issue in the National Park Service on on every level. So and so I, when I took on the mission of trying to diversify the outdoors, I focused on the national parks because we're talking about communities who have zero knowledge of the outdoors and what it means and, and all the different sectors involved and all the different designations. And I thought the easiest way to draw them in would be through iconic parks that they would recognize. You know, I live in a part of Seattle where I look at Mount Rainier every day. Well, not every day because it's cloudy here a lot, but on, on most days, and I did a story where I talked to people in my neighborhood and asked them if they'd been to this park that, or been to this mountain that we look at every day. And uh, all but one of three dozen people I talked to said they hadn't. And so there's there's a history that's developed over de- generations of not being engaged with our national park system to the point where uh, there's going to be an intersection of a non-white majority in this country with a lack of uh, commitment and relationship with the outdoors and the National Park Service that could mean the end of the Park Service as we know it because that majority is going to be voting for representatives who are going to be um, voting on budgets. And our priority may not be the public lands. Right, that's right. And so just for our uh, listeners who um, haven't met you before, uh, when you say that you're walking around national parks and people don't look like us, you and your wife, what does that mean? I'm Asian American. My wife is Latina. And I live in Seattle, which has a very multiracial history in terms of civil rights, in terms of the communities that we live in. We don't have large uh, African-American or Asian-American. So we all live together. Um, so we really look at this from a person of color standpoint. So we don't see, um, when we say we don't see people look like us, you know, I'm multiracial. My kids are even more, more multiracial than I. We're not seeing any color. Um, you know, I've been going to Olympic National Park my whole life, but with my wife the past five years or so, we have yet to run into another person or couple of color unless we go to the you know the native town of Lapush that's outside just outside the park boundaries and we're not counting those as visitors because they live there right mm-hmm. yeah so in, in other words there, there's not a lot of people f- of color from what will soon be the majority in America going to these national parks it's it's actually quite a a white thing to do, uh, which is, can be easily overlooked or sort of forgotten. Um, when you when you visit a park or when I visit a park, um, it, it it may not occur to me that that's a, a an impending problem. It might be a little bit easier to um, notice that uh, trails aren't maintained or that um, other facilities aren't maintained or or that there's a uh, uh, you know, a, a, a beetle kill on a hillside or, or something like that. There are some problems that seem obvious and there are others that don't. Um, and you talked a little bit about how 
having a public that isn't isn't voting for representatives who are going to put value on these national parks, um, and that kind of can have a knock-on effect on, on funding and resources. But actually, the parks are already facing that kind of funding problem. Um, one of one of our stories in this issue uh, deals exactly with that. And and Jody, you edited that story, so maybe you could just kind of break down what kind of what what's the funding problem? What wh- it's hard to believe that we don't put a lot of money into our national parks, given how um, iconic they are. But but we don't, in fact. So what does that look like? What the parks get from Congress is just a tiny percent of the federal budget. Um, in two thousand one, it was just. of overall federal spending. And then by 2014, that was down to 0.07%. So it's really shrunk. Um, And the amount of appropriations um, that Congress gives the agency has declined 8% over the last five or six years, even after adjusting for inflation. Um, But what isn't declining in the Park Service budget is the amount of money that it gets from fees and donations and corporations. And that has gone up by about 40% over the last several years. Um, So that means that we're no longer providing federal funding for the parks at the level that the parks really need to just for general operations and to keep up with the maintenance problems. Uh, And that's forcing parks to try to figure out what to do about that. And the parks are kind of constrained in their ways that they have to raise money, and one of the most obvious ones is for them to look at corporate sponsorships. So there is that's something that parks have been starting to do. Is you know not that they're gonna not that we're gonna see you know Coca Cola you know renaming a national park, but you know we are seeing corporate donations um, as a way to for parks to kind of make up the shortfall in their budget. Um, they're starting to turn to that more and more. Glenn, are you seeing that where you're at? Have you seen anything from the sort of corporations? That rings um, true to me because I have a most of my background in journalism is, is as a sports writer. And I remember when corporations started um, being injected into sponsorships, they said the same thing, Jody, that, hey, you're never going to see, you know, the, the football field in Seattle brought to you by CenturyLink, which is a high speed Internet service. Well, Today you have CenturyLink Field, and you have soccer teams, you have uh, women's basketball teams, with with not the names of their cities anymore, but the names with of their um, corporate sponsors. So I think a lot of people look at the opening of the door to corporate sponsorship at, on on one hand as a necessity, on the other hand as a slippery slope that has been slid down in, in other sectors of our life. Yeah, so you could, I mean, it might be hard to believe that Arches National Park could become Golden Arches National Park, but <laughs> <laughs> trademark, trademark. Uh, but I, I think it's a real concern for people who love the parks what corporate sponsorship um, means now and, and could mean in the future. And so you, what you have is kind of a bit of a funding crunch and demographic shift that is or has the potential at least of uh, moving priorities even farther away from the national parks uh, and the public lands in general, I guess. Um, and then on top of that, you get this sort of um, climate change problem. And, um, you know, that sort of that affects that the parks on an ecological level, which I think in a way could change what the parks look like or at least change the health of the parks um jody we have another story in the in the issue there where we talk about climate change really directly we actually have two stories one is about um 
the uh, chief climate change scientist for the National Park Service, and the other is uh, a smaller story on just the impact of the climate change on the park. So maybe we could talk a little bit about how climate change is actually um, changing what the parks are, the ecology of the parks, or is it what they look like? Does it change their, you know, do you go to some place and can you tell when you go to some parks that the climate change is um, uh, having an impact? Yeah, I think the signs of climate change are becoming pretty obvious um, all across the national park system. Um, and in some parks, it's more apparent than others. Like when you go to Glacier National Park, you don't see the kind of glaciers that you used to see. And if you go to Saguaro National Park outside of Tucson, um, you don't see the number of saguaros that you used to. Even that iconic cactus you know, and that's cactus, and it's disappearing because of climate change, of hotter and drier conditions. Um, so you're seeing shifts all over the place there on the coasts. You're seeing um, sea level rises starting to erode away. Parks, you know, along the Olympic um, National Park in Washington is experiencing some coastal erosion. So, you know, you're seeing impacts all over the place. Um, you know, wildlife in Yosemite, pikas and, you know, those high elevation um Alpine animals are not, they don't have the kind of habitat that they used to. That's, they have disappeared in a lot of areas. In other areas, they're retreating uphill. Um, you also see like things like pine trees moving into open meadows that you know they never occupied before. They used to be just grasslands. Yeah, yeah that's right. There's like a lot of conundrums, actually, that get built around this. For one thing, if climate change is heating up these sort of um, mountainous zones, it actually creates a squeeze, and it like squeezes these yeah, animals up exactly. to higher and higher elevations. It's almost like a flood of temperature. Um, and then you have huge management questions about, um, okay, so do we leave this meadow a meadow? Be, or, or do we try or do we fight the encroachment of these trees? There's these sort of like these battles in nature kind of take place on a longer time scale, but basically it's the trees versus the meadow, uh, and the trees are sort of starting to win and take hold. And so you know, do you go in there, rip out the saplings of these uh, Douglas firs, or I think it is, or something, you know, some kind of tree, do you go in there and just sort of tear it up so this meadow can stay a meadow, even though what really wants to happen under a new climate regime is the trees want to want to win. Um, so I think that's, that's really interesting. And we kind of spent a lot of time in this issue talking about the uh, lead climate scientist for the National Park Service. And yes, there is one. Most of the rhetoric, uh, political rhetoric around climate change actually doesn't take place on any management level whatsoever. Um, you know, managers of ecologies, including in the national parks, acknowledge that climate change is one of the main things that they're having to deal with. Uh, this guy is super interesting. Jody, you edited the story with our DC correspondent, Elizabeth Shogren. She interviewed um, this uh, scientist. His name is Patrick Gonzalez. Um, he actually got into climate research um, 25 years ago uh, in Senegal, and he walked something like 1,200 miles across Senegal and, and interviewed all these people from 135 villages to figure out how climate change was actually shifting the world around them. And he was able to sort of document this um, shift. So, you know, his career went on and he get, got hired by the National Park Service. Um, wh what does this really say, do you think, um, Glenn, about what kind of resources the National Park is actually putting into climate change? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because we're, you know, we talked earlier about the sustainability of the park system and i think the 
some of the changes on the iconic features of National Park can have uh, ramifications on visitation. So I, I was just up at Mount Rainier National Park, which is world-renowned for its wildflowers during the summer, and they're at their peak right now. But I was up there last year at the, sa at the same time, and it was pa way past peak. Um, and I, you see people from all over the world who have come to see the wildflowers. So last year they would have come now at, at the typical time and probably saved money to come here and missed out on it. And so that for the long-term sustainability of the parks, which does draw um, a certain percentage of its income from uh, entrance fees, there are there's certainly some real ramifications. <laughs> that's that's funny. That's like a, a migration pattern that's getting disrupted. Other migration patterns are getting <laughs> disrupted by climate change, but the sort of Including touristic it. migration pattern to national parks is also being disrupted. Um, uh, if, if you're just joining us, you're listening to West Obsessed, where uh, the editors and writers of High Country News discuss issues important to the American West. Uh, I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of High Country News. I'm here today talking about the future of the national parks. Uh, and I'm talking with senior editor Jody Peterson and a contributing editor, Glenn Nelson. Uh, Glenn, you, you spend a lot of time uh, on, on a story that talks about the problem of the national parks getting diversity into their actual system. In other words, people working for the parks. Um, it's a really tough system to crack. You had a really interesting lead character to your story. I wonder if you could just talk to us a bit, a bit about her and uh, how you found her and why, and why you decided to focus on her for your reporting. Over a year ago, my wife and I were on a journalistic road trip, and I had just written um, an op-ed piece for the New York Times that was really widely read, so I was getting inundated with um, emails. And one of the emails, and we were, we were following the Columbia River to look at Maya Lin's um, confluence installation, so we were approaching the end of our trip. We were across the river from Astoria, Oregon, and I got an email saying, hey, did you know there were two... Uh, bilingual interns at Lewis and Clark National Historic Park, to which I answered, I didn't even know there was a Lewis and Clark National Historic Park for, for beginners, <laughs> but I, I looked it up and I called the, the superintendent and said, hey, I heard you have bilingual interns over there. I'd like to meet them. So he basically dropped everything. And Nancy was one of the two, Nancy Fernandez from uh, Central California. Scott Tucker was the superintendent at the time. He's since moved on to Sleeping Bear Dunes in Michigan. Um, kept telling me, this this kid's a rock star. She, she has a teaching background. She's really good with the kids. Uh, she's really good with instilling confidence in the parents. Big things are going to happen with her. And then I talked to her, and she's like, eh, I'm just, you know, this is being a typical kid, I'm just, I'm just checking this out. I, I have no vested interest in the outdoor. In fact, my parents are, you know, migrant workers, uh, immigrants from Mexico, and they look at the outdoors in a negative vein. It, it, it's a place where you break your back, and they've broken their back for me for 20 years to, so I didn't have to work outdoors. So they're not really on board with this, and I don't know if I am either. She's 25 so, years old, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, she was compelling enough and Scott Tucker was compelling enough because in my view, and this gets to kind of the root of the issue, you know, the Park Service is now 83% white and it's be becoming wider and wider 
um, it became wider during the Obama administration, despite a lot of initiatives to try to diversify the, the workforce. The initiative to diversify itself has to come from its whiteness. It, it just does, because there is no other um, source. So it was interesting to me that Scott Tucker was trying to draw a Latino community that was developing around his park near Astoria, Oregon, and through some missed cultural missteps, he came to the conclusion that he needs to bring in uh, actual Latinos who can speak Spanish. Oh, yeah. Back up and talk about that misstep, because that was a really interesting problem that they created for themselves there. So Scott has a background. He's worked at uh, the, the National Mall. Uh, he's worked at the National Museum for the American Indian. So he he's developed through his career a sensibility for diversity and sees the importance of it. So he arrives, this is his first superintendent job. He arrives in Oregon, sees this developing, it used to be a migrant community, now it's just, it's putting down its roots around his park and he wants to get them in. So he has a free picnic every year to celebrate the uh, Founders Day for Lewis and Clark National Park. He sends two of his rangers out for a, for an entire week to go visit all the migrant communities, invite people to come to their park for free, have free hot dogs and balloons and, and activities for the kids. So kind, he's of, really, kind of house he's to really, house, right? I mean, he's sending these guys house to house. Correct. Uh -huh. And he's really excited about this. So picnic day comes and it's the same old crowd. And we were, he, when he was telling the story, we were sitting in this park and he points, he goes, you know, like you see here, and it's, you know, white seniors basically who come to this picnic every year and it was the same crowd. So he's really perplexed. He goes back and talks to uh, the community leaders and they applauded that he put so much effort into it. But then they asked him, well, you, you know, you sent these two Rangers out for an entire week. Were they in uniform? And he said at that exact moment, he immediately got it, slapped his forehead and uh, put together that, you know, men in uniform, no matter the community of color, really have a negative connotation. And especially with the migrant uh, Latino population because of the, the border patrol. And in fact, the, the company that makes the National Park Service uniforms also makes the border patrol uniform. So there's a lot of similarity to it. So the moral of that story is that if he had had a Latino deputy superintendent say, or even, you know, uh, a person of color on his staff, because if I were on his staff, I certainly could have flagged it. He could have avoided that uh, cultural misstep. And he, he basically lost a year out of his mission because of it. And so have they had a, have they had a new picnic yet? I guess not. They haven't had a new picnic, but they, what Nancy and then Sal at the time were brought in to do was to increase the number of Latino kids in their summer camps. So they, they were brought in right before the summer camp started. And so they had some mild success. Nancy translated all their um, marketing materials into Spanish and then went out basically to uh, put people's mind at ease because they don't know what they're getting into, just like her parents didn't know what she was getting into. So they had a few, when I when I visited, they had a few uh, Latino kids. So a year later, um, because of the lessons they learned, the park now has a permanent ranger who is bilingual and has something like seven of its staff who are uh, 
you know, young people of color work in their summer camp and they develop a program with the Astoria school system. And now half of their summer camp is Latino kids. Uh, and then, so those were some of the successes and what, what happened to Nancy Fernandez? So Nancy Fernandez, Scott Tucker calls her a rock star, helps her get another, um, and she's a student conservation association intern. And the SCA is one of the big, biggest partners of the National Park Service and previously with a lot of the public lands management agencies uh, as a provider of interns and specifically diverse interns because they, not being a governmental agency, can target diverse um, populations and they're, whereas the agency itself there are, you know, it needs to be open competition because it's a federal um, hiring system. So it it has difficulty doing so. So they turn to third parties like the SCA. So Nancy's an SCA intern. He arranges for her to get another SCA internship. And then I went to visit her in the winter and the picture was rosy. She now has a non-competitive status, which means she does not have to compete with the general public um, for a job. And, and cutting to the chase on the hiring, she will, non-competitive, um, people with non-competitive status will appear on a list to a hiring manager. And the hiring manager can take, uh, can either interview or, or directly um, take a person off that list with non-competitive status. So she had that status. Nancy now is convinced that she wants to work in the park service and, and outdoors, and she will be fighting off people from within the agency because she's young, she's a woman, she's Latina, she's bilingual, she's got everything that people are looking for because diversity is, is now a priority in the agency, in fact, in, in federal governmental hiring. And so she's going to be a hot commodity. So I saw her in the winter and then again um, right before she left for Chattahoochee River National um, Recreation Area down near Atlanta where she got yet another um, SCA internship. Her first non-competitive status came and went. Um, Lewis and Clark tried to hand her a, a job on a platter. You know, they the hiring manager can write a job description such that they can, can they can kind of cater it to a specific person. Well, she applied for that position and, and was deemed non-qualified by HR at the National Park Service uh, HR office. It goes through uh, people's application and resumes mm. uh, to see if they meet the basic requirement. And for that position, it was an educational position. She was at uh, Lewis and Clark at the time for, I think, half a year. But before she even went into the Park Service, she had numerous years of teaching um, experience, which which is allowable. But it's up to the person applying. If you get a non-qualification um, notice to call HR and say, hey, what? why am I non-qualified? They would explain and then she would have said, oh, I have you know three years of teaching experience. And they would have said, great, then you qualify. And it would have been taken care of in five minutes. But when you're a person you know, of color or uh, immigrant uh, parents, you see the system is kind of being rigged against you. So it didn't even occur to Nancy to even make that call in the first place. So her 
non-competitive status came and went. She got another, she earned another non-competitive status through her internship uh, at Chattahoochee, but she didn't know it was coming. I had actually, I had called to ask her about it and she didn't know, do I, am I going to qualify again? And I'm like, yeah, actually you are. You're going to put in, you have to put in, uh, I think it's 320 hours of conservation work through your internship to qualify. So she's gone through over a year of internships with the National Park Service and what I thought was going to be the story is that I would uh, follow her through the system. And at the end, she would come out with a permanent position uh, with the National Park Service, you know, with the happy ending. And as it turns out, she left Chattahoochee. She moved back to California. She doesn't have a job with the Park Service. She uh, now is engaged in a training session, which I thought was going to engage her you know, Monday through Friday, but it's a weekend only. So she has no job and she has parents who are telling that her, I told you so. And she's having to fight the, you know, the cultural barrier, but she still wants to work in the park service. And she had every opportunity that's can be afforded to one, you know, especially a young diverse job candidate. And it's, and she still fell through the cracks and she's exactly the kind of person that the park should be looking for for their sort of next hundred years, uh, and it just didn't happen. It couldn't it? Couldn't happen. Um, and I, I think that that really speaks to the kind of the kind of problem there. So what you really have you have you have climate change, you have uh, underfunding, you have uh, uh, demographics that uh, are changing and, uh, uh, and a lack of awareness of the parks from the general public. And then you also have inside the park service itself this um, inability to actually change. And so, Jody, what do you think, I mean, the bottom line, what do we need to do going forward in order to have national parks for another 100 years? Well, I think the issue that Glenn's talking about is really the most fundamental one, is just building that constituency of people that are going to continue to care about national parks and continue to want to have a park system. And from that, I think that's going to help with, you know, the funding problem. It's going to, you know, help ensure that there are people in Congress who think parks are important who will vote to fund them. Um, and that will help the agency address a little better some of these other problems like climate change. Um, you know, they're, they're, Patrick Gonzalez, who you mentioned earlier, is the chief climate scientist for the park system, and he is, you know, working really hard in all the parks to try to help them figure out what they can do to adapt to these changes that are coming. Um, they won't be able to prevent them, really. I mean, that's not the mission of the park service is to prevent greenhouse gas emissions, but they can figure out what maybe what they can do to make parks more resilient. Um, they can try to, you know, thin out forests so that they're less fire prone, um, and they can, you know, figure out other things that they can do um, to try to make the, the parks um, at least last through the, you know, deal with these periods of really, you know, significant changes that we'll be facing. Um, so they will be, you know, some rivers will be probably getting too warm for native trout. Well, maybe there's some efforts that can be undertaken to move those trout to some cooler areas. You know, there's just a lot of management actions that parks can do to kind of try to adapt to climate change. Yeah, I think actually really the bottom line is that the national parks are a really good way for people to connect uh, to the natural, non-human world. They're places of awe and wonder, and I, I think that people who work to protect the parks know that, and uh, people who go to them know that. So, 
So the real trick will be to manage that inside the really tough problems of climate change and these other things that we're talking about. If we can't do that, I'm not sure where we'll end up. Uh, I know that we've ended up running out of time, um, so that's going to be it uh, for today's episode of West Obsessed. This is a collaboration between KVNF and High Country News. Thanks again to senior editor Jody Peterson and contributing editor Glenn Nelson for joining me. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks, Brian. Thank you, Brian. I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of High Country News, and as always, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.